Hey folks, this is Nat Kendall Taylor. I'm the CEO of the Frameworks Institute, and you're listening to our podcast, Frames of Mind. When it comes to social issues, experts say one thing, public hears another. We use social science and the science of framing to bridge that gap. You'll hear a member of our staff, or in some cases, a few very special guests chat about social science, social issues, all through the lens of framing, exploring how it can shape our understanding of the world, or at the very least, how we talk about it. If someone were to ask you about oral health, you might think along these lines. Personal oral health care, like flossing and mouthwash, using a straw for sugary snacks. But what if you were to think about oral health as an advocacy issue? Imagine, for a minute, someone has a toothache, but they live in a rural community and the nearest dentist is 32 miles away. They have no car and there is no public transportation. And perhaps English is not their first language. And maybe once they get there, they find out that their dentist doesn't accept that particular healthcare plan. Transportation, language, access. These all pose a serious barriers to getting the proper care. But as an advocate, how might you explain those barriers to someone who's thinking of oral health strictly as what they see in a toothpaste commercial? Believe it or not, metaphors can help, and so can messengers and values too. I'm your host, April Callan, and on this episode of Frames of Mind, we explore tools of language. We'll hear from our team of linguists and cognitive scientists, Lea Boroditsky out of UC San Diego, unpack the question, how can language help us understand and move us to care? So to start, if we can just go around and so we have it to get everyone's name, um, title at Frameworks in your area of study. Julie Sweetland, I'm a senior advisor at Frameworks, and I'm a sociolinguist. I'm Emily Lodes. I'm a senior researcher and manager of qualitative methods at Frameworks, uh, and I'm a linguist by training, specialized in cognitive linguistics and corpus linguistics. I'm Rose Hendricks, and I'm a researcher at Frameworks and um, a cognitive scientist. All right. So before coming to Frameworks, I always thought of linguistics as like preserving language or people who just sit around and study language for the sake of that. And I imagine I'm probably not alone in that assumption. So tell us a little bit about what it means to be a sociolinguist. Well, to be a linguist is to study language scientifically, like an object of study, not a subject of study. So you're not necessarily learning Hindi or Urdu, but rather what is the, what are the structures of those language languages? And a sociolinguist would do something like notice that the grammar and the phonology of those two languages, Hindi and Urdu, are actually quite similar, and people just call them different things because of the cultural boundary between India and Pakistan. So it's thinking about how language lives in society, how culture influences uh, language use. Um, it's a kind of a cross between sociology and linguistics. Interesting. And Emily, you mentioned cognitive linguistics. What is that exactly? Yeah. Uh, so the reason why I mentioned uh, cognitive linguistics and corpus linguistics together is because they've, they've become sort of allies, I guess, uh, within the, uh, the field of linguistics. And I, and I agree with you, like whenever I tell people I'm a linguist, um, they always end up being really disappointed when I tell them that I speak. French, English, and a bit of German. Uh, and not far some... more than most people. <laughs> but not, yeah, not, not like five languages that are on the verge of extinction somewhere very exotic. Yeah. Cognitive linguistics looks at, you know, again, structures and construction and semantics as well. 
uh, and how you know um, the way that we speak is actually connected to the way we think. And I think corpus linguistics is um, it's interesting because I think it's somehow connected to again language being used in society. And corpus linguistics looks at the language in use in general. So it's kind of the opposite of those like 18th century grammar books that you would look at where people decided just like a couple of guys got together in the room and decided that that was the correct structure for, you know, X to say X. Um, a corpus linguist would be like, oh, let me look at, you know, 10, 100 million words of, you know, language in use and see which of you know, which structures are used the most often among speakers to say that thing. And that will determine whether or not it's correct. I see. So that's, and, and I think that's it's kind of really looking at language use from an evidence-based um, perspective, as opposed to, you know, theoretically deciding that something is correct or not. And Rose, would you consider yourself a linguist at all? Where do you fit into this? I consider myself a friend of linguists, okay. uh, not necessarily a linguist myself per se, because uh, at sort of at the heart of what my research interests have always been is understanding humans and how they think. And language is a huge and crucial part of that. And so kind of using language and metaphor in particular to figure out what it tells us about sort of how we make sense of the world and how we sort of produce meaning for ourselves. Language and an understanding of linguistics has always been a really important part of that. And so, Julie, I'm going to shift now to understanding how you all got into this work. So I know you have a long, straight history of being an educator. I believe it's you've taught from, was it pre-K to grad level? Um, In some capacity, I've worked with learners from pre-K to Ph.D. Okay, But I uh, spent quite a bit of time doing being an elementary school teacher and then got into teacher education. So preparing teachers uh, to to teach. And uh, in the course of that work, that was actually how I ended up finding frameworks. As I was designing the curriculum for a brand new teacher education uh, program, I wanted some overarching metaphors to help people, help these new teachers think about their role in schools and how schools worked and and how they uh, might best engage uh, with children to support them. And I knew, I noticed that many of the metaphors that were available to think about teaching and education were really problematic. So uh, teachers would talk about themselves as being on the front lines, which is a military metaphor and which suggests that, you know, the kids are somehow the enemy. And they didn't necessarily feel that way, but it was a, a, a metaphor that was kind of built into the, to the language of the field. Or we would talk about teachers as superheroes, you know, rushing in to, to kind of save, you know, a classroom or children as plants, you know, just add water and then poof, they grow. And so I wanted to kind of have a different language to engage with with our teacher candidates. And as a trained linguist, I thought I'm not the first person to notice these problematic metaphors. Someone has done a study on this. And so I started to, to look and that's how I encountered frameworks research on Um, Not just, well, they had developed metaphors to think about education. So instead of transforming education or blowing up the system, they offered this metaphor of remodeling that, you know, the system, the traditional system has been built over hundreds of years, like a valuable, you know, home, and we need to maintain and, and, and support it. Uh, But also there are some things that need to be updated and changed, uh, like a house being remodeled. And that fit perfectly with where what I thought of as education, like good education reform as opposed to uh, politically problematic education reform. So I just fell into these studies 
remember my uh, my husband rolled over. It's three in the morning. I have my iPad. I'm reading. He's like, "What are you doing?" I was like, "There's this place. They develop metaphors. They test them seven different ways. It's so awesome." And he rolled back over. Um, but um, but I I started following the organization and uh, found myself here. Awesome metaphors. Who knew you could bring you together like that? And Emily, your work has also been in metaphors, but in sort of a different realm. Yeah. Um, so. I got into metaphors looking at, you know, looking at specific constructions as, as any good linguist would. Um, but the, the way that I've always been most interested in language is in context. So language in context, but also like its social context, its political context. And I wanted to see if, well, what roles metaphors could play in building um, an effective public discourse. Um, and so I, I decided to, for my PhD, I worked on um, political discourse specifically and the discourse that was used by the New Labour Party in the UK at the time that Tony Blair was um, the head of the party, so from 1994 to 2007. Um, and and I, I was really interested to see whether like some of the metaphors that were used to talk about, you know, change, about um, neoliberalism about globalization contributed to um, the new image that the party was building. So how do you go from, you know, being almost anti-capitalist and anti-nuclear power um, and not having it been in power for over 20 years to becoming super popular again and kind of embracing neoliberalism in, in a way that didn't come off as you betraying everything that the party was before you came into power? And, and so it was really interesting to see what, what role metaphors played in there and how they helped with people's understanding of that new identity that the party was building. And Rose, I see you're nodding your head with speaking to you there. Yeah, I mean, a lot of, of what both Emily and Julie are mentioning are speaking to me because I, I fell in love with metaphors in a similar way through first, I guess, a, a love of languages and, and the realization that uh, many features of language really kind of structure the way that we habitually attend to the world and encode it and, and perceive and act in it. And, and so um, that's what ultimately drove me to figure out how metaphors shape thought more. Um, and, and similarly, uh, when frameworks came across my radar through, I, I think, a, an article um, written by Michael Arard in, in Eon, a, a very cool blog about how he works as a metaphor constructionist. Um, I was floored pretty much because I, I had been wondering the same, how can I put this theoretical, these skills and this kind of theoretical body I'm amassing um, to use to, to make progress on some really important issues. And so that's, you know, precisely what we're doing here. And what is a metaphor constructionist? You know, I, th I think what he meant by that, of course, at the time I was not totally sure, but uh, was certainly intrigued enough to, to try to find out, um, is, is the idea of being really thoughtful and diligent in taking metaphors from real seeds or kernels and kind of building them up and figuring out what are the mappings, you know, what is like what there, and um, then through testing, figuring out what is helpful for people in the field, what expands learning and understanding, um, what is not helpful, and what does a really effective metaphor look like? So I guess it's kind of like um, building a good metaphor maybe from, from the ground up with some tweaks along the way. There's, there's a lot of remodeling, actually, I guess, in the, in the process of developing a good metaphor. And so how do you develop a good metaphor? Like, What is that process? What does that look like? 
And how do you know that you have a solid one? <laughs> Takes us a long time to know if we have a solid one, I think. Um, I think part of the first uh, step in, in developing a good metaphor is putting all the ideas out there. So acknowledging that there will be bad ones, figuring out what makes them not, a, not as good metaphors, um, and then testing them through, as Julie said, when, you know, initially when she um, was intrigued by frameworks, testing them through a number of different methods and um, seeing people use them in practice and seeing how they shape the way people are reasoning about things, what policies they're preferring, how they're describing issues, how they communicate to each other. All those things kind of get taken into consideration and in figuring out what what is a good metaphor for any given task. I think that I agree with all of that. I might put it as we have a winning metaphor when it helps ordinary people understand an issue and think system structures and, and society, um, that they don't understand a particular issue as, you know, the problem is someone's own personal fault or um, the people experiencing the problem somehow made their bed, now they have to lie in it, but rather there's something um, more, we, we have something to do as a society. We have something to do as a society. We have something to do as a policy level. And so uh, it makes them smarter about an issue, but also more progressive on an issue. And I think one thing that's one thing I, I find really interesting about the conversation we've been having and, and what we're doing here at Frameworks is that cognitive linguistics and I'm assuming cognitive science as well, but I don't want to presume. So please, Rose, stop me if I'm if I'm talking nonsense. Um, in, in cognitive linguistics, we 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 usually say that metaphor is one of the fundamental ways in which we understand the world. So we're kind of wired to think metaphorically, but mostly unconsciously to begin with. So, you know, the the most recurrent uh, type of metaphors that we would use to talk about that is that when we think about time, we think about time in terms of space. So I'll say that Christmas is approaching and I can't really face the future, or I want to put something behind me if it's in the past. So there are different languages that might, you know, talk about the past as something that's in front and the future in the back for different reasons. But basically, every, like most languages in the world will talk about space, uh, time in terms of space. Um, and, and, and that's unconscious. And, and we, we, we do, well, we metaphorize all the time without, without knowing that we do. And, and I think that's one of the reasons why metaphors is such uh, a powerful tool for public intentional communication and all of the metaphors that we're using sometimes rely on fundamental ways that we have to understand the world. Um, but they, they are intentional, they are deliberate, they are clearly presented as metaphors. Um, but it's not because they are constructed that they're not relying on a fundamental cognitive mechanism that we all share to begin with. Yeah, I mean, in, in like Emily is saying, in a way, metaphors are inescapable. They're all over our language. They're kind of underlying a lot of the ways we're thinking about things. And so it makes a lot of sense to be really intentional and um, empirical about figuring out what the most productive metaphors are, because because they're going to be here, whether we mean to or or not. Um, and there are a lot of ways of sort of harnessing those underlying metaphorical patterns of thinking that we have in order to actually make more sense of the world. So I've heard you all mention this notion of a public discourse versus a private discourse. What does that mean and how does that play out in communications? So although metaphors are inescapable, I would love to escape from them for a little bit because um, there's so much more to thinking about language in society than, than, just, than just metaphor, as powerful as it is. And so one of the things I love about being able to bring uh, a big picture understanding of 
um, how language surrounds us and, and, and makes the world that we appreciate is, um, is thinking about public discourse and private discourse. So private discourse is everyday conversations between people um, in the course of their everyday lives. So um, chit chat, water cooler, sweet nothings to your sweetie, um, endearments to your child, right? Personal private sphere sorts of conversations. Whereas public discourse is language that is used uh, beyond uh, one, uh, your, your, what do you call it, a close interlocutor, so the person you're actually talking to, but rather has um, an unknown but imagined uh, hearer, and that you're engaging in it for the purpose of uh, talking about things that are, again, beyond your private sphere, that they are about common concerns, shared stake. Um, it can be politics, big P, you know, electoral politics, but it, it could just be um, how we think about different groups or different people interacting in the world and what is right and what is what is good and what do we what do we see as, as right or wrong with the world. So thinking about how advocates can use public discourse to build public understanding for public responses to social problems. That is that that whole set of um, language moving from from mind to to policy is is the is the idea of, of public discourse. Um, so I want to go to something you said before, Emily, about studying this concept of time and how that plays out in language. And so I'm sure we're all aware of politically, we're seeing these different conversations about going back to some form of the past when things were much better. Um, much easier, safer, everything worked better in the past. Julie, I know we've seen this in our education work um, and other spaces. So can you say a little more about working with the language around time and where that moves people ahead or backwards? Does it work? Doesn't it work? Just what's the conversation there? Yeah, I think I think it's interesting because depending on how you frame, you know, your your chat about time, you're going to get different results. Um, if I look at the research that I did on new labor discourse, new labor was very, and this was all before 2008, you know, financial crisis, collapse of, you know, so and so many banks. The party had a way of talking about progress and neoliberalism in a way that would not make sense anymore now, just because they've been proven wrong since. But at the time, they were really, so the party was changing. And they were presenting that change, which was, I mean, if you look at the political spectrum, it was a shift to the right. They were becoming less socialist, basically. They were shifting to the right, but they presented it as forward movement, as progress. Um, you know, building also on the idea that, you know, change is a, is a winning platform in politics. Uh, it's every, every so often, if you run on change, it will actually work. And which, of course, we have seen here. And we are getting Obama light in 2.0. Um, as each election goes on, hoping to recapture some of that sense of change to move and motivate people. Exactly. And so and so New Labour was presenting their work as, you know, forward movement progress, but also kind of future looking, like looking towards the future and building for the future. And they they were very consciously portraying their opponents, the conservatives, as these like zombies coming back from a really scary past and I think because they were presenting the future as this thing that was so appealing and that was necessarily better than what we had now and that what was before and presenting the past as this really undesirable state to be in added to the fact that you know technically we still haven't found a way to turn back time and go back to the past 
it, it kind of just made sense that like people would vote for this like sunny, positive, albeit slightly threatening version of the future. And I think what we're seeing in how people think about different issues, you know, thinking that, you know, back in the days it was a lot better uh, or, in, you know, in, in, in Trump's campaign that can like make America great again. He's actually portraying the past as something, you know, immensely desirable um, in a way that, you know, to to a proportion of the population uh, with a variety of racialized and othering assumptions about um, the American population as well. But it's like he's presenting the past as this appealing state to be in. And so in his way of talking about time, it is possible to turn back time in a way. Um, so so it's I, I find it really interesting. Like, I think I think New Labour's rhetoric of, 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 you know, going towards the future made sense at the time, given the political and economic context. And it made sense because they were portraying the past in a very specific way. And I'm just thinking or curious if you all have seen this sort of tension in any of the recent research projects that you've been through, because if you're not looking at it at this level and you're just, say, a passerby watching the news or reading the paper, you can kind of feel that we are returning to the past in a lot of ways. But when we know, when we study culture, that culture takes a long time to shift. So what feels immediate based on the narratives and the stories that we're seeing in media, it might be possible that things aren't changing as quickly as we see them. But I'm curious, have you seen in any of the work that you've all done recently that sort of tension or conflicts that people are having with this past and present yeah no i i just i just find it interesting that like i think one thing that we're doing about getting people to think about the future in interesting ways give it frameworks is actually going beyond the question of whether the future is going to be better or, or, or worse which is a debate that's been going on in like social sciences at the moment it's like you know how have we is it true that we've never had it so good and that like you know the world is just keep keep keeps getting better and better, which I think kind of obliterates a lot of the discourse around, you know, a lot of the realities of disparities and inequalities that are rising and that are kind of emphasizing only the good stuff is just being unproductive in a certain way. And then kind of emphasizing that the past was better tends to reinforce people's thinking about, you know, I don't know, kind of, you know, that it was better when systemic racism was just right. not being called out for what it was. Right. And, That's you know, we could just be area. exactly. And so so it gets all, you know, it was better when women could stay at home and take care of their children as opposed to what's going on now. So that's not a very productive way of thinking either. But I think what we're doing is kind of trying to equip people by giving them, as Julie was saying, kind of equipping them with a, a series of clear, concrete solutions that they can hang on to, thinking the future can look like this and this is how we can get there so that there's less fatalism and there's more kind of, um, yeah, there's more of a sense of efficacy. And I think that 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 concept of building a sense of efficacy it's probably more productive in terms of thinking of, you know, how do we talk about the future and the past? It's like, what can we do to make things better as opposed to just standing back and evaluating whether, you know, 50 years ago was better than what is going to happen in 50 years if the world is still standing, you know. Yes. <laughs> and I mean, that point that Emily just made stood out really clearly in, our, in recent work we did um, in the UK on oceans and, and marine areas where we found that um, we could talk about sort of the present as compared to the past, like look at the, the, the way this ocean has changed or the present as compared to the future, sort of if we continue on this note, this is what things will look like. And, and they were both really effective. It wasn't that we needed to guide people towards the past or to the future, but actually that bringing out this element of change and, and thinking about just 
you know, the way things do change over time and how much sort of physical experience we have with that concept was really important. So neither is good or bad. Um, and in the case of, you know, the environment, which I think you you brought up at the very start of this, um, we're on this bigger trajectory that in, in, it sort of encompasses the past and the future. And so um, that was one cool area where the change was just a really important part of highlighting. And it's not about now versus some other time. I think we can actually build on something that Julie said earlier that um, she wanted to get like escape metaphors for a little bit. Uh, and I think I think it it kind of builds on grows in my experience on the research team for the past like you know a couple of years now here that um, we have to not necessarily escape metaphors but not make them the be all and all of our recommendations um, even though they're nice and shiny and and they're interesting and they're original. They can only do so much work, and I think I think we we found this the the hard way with the parenting work. So um, this was a project uh, done in collaboration with the Parenting Research Center in in Australia, and the goal was to reframe parenting. And the 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 name of the project was reframing effective parenting, and so we initially took this for granted that what we were reframing was how do we talk about parenting in productive ways and so we tested all sorts of different metaphors about you know is learning to parent like learning an art is it like learning a craft is it like learning a sport is it like learning to drive like all of these different like fun metaphors and i was on the street and it, it kind of you know i was on the street of melbourne sydney testing those and and they they did some work but not a lot and it wasn't quite working as we were expecting and we ended up finding that the problem was the premise, like it wasn't the metaphor itself, but it was the, the very premise of the project that was wrong. It's like we reframing parenting actually meant make, making the issue about something else besides parenting. And it meant broadening the lens in a way that made the issue about child development. And as soon as we tested and we made, you know, a series of, of, of solutions and policies that we were arguing for about child development and ensuring that you know children in Australia had good development by supporting parents people like people's support for those solutions and policy just skyrocketed compared to any argument that was made about parenting just because parenting is something that people that is part of each individual's identity in such a deep way that it was really hard to try to shift people's perception of what that meant and was systematically met with pushback about, you know, well, you can't say what is good parenting and what isn't. Everybody has their own way to do. There's no guidebook, blah, blah, blah. And so we actually had to, you know, step away from metaphor for a while. And we used the metaphors. We used a very effective metaphor to talk about one specific point within the whole issue of parenting, which was explaining how systemic factors affect how people parent but that wasn't about defining what parenting was and we had to make the project about another big idea and to stop making it about parenting to make it work and so that big idea um, when we test it we will call that an issue frame so it's like what is this about it's not about parenting it's actually about child development that was going to be my next question yeah <laughs> so it's like yeah so that issue frame that big idea just made the project about something else and that was the way that we made everything else just work um which i think is, is a very good illustration of, of julie's point that you know metaphors are not the only thing that we need to focus on when we make recommendations here
Right. And they're they're really limited in, in what they can do, even when you have the sort of the right issue that you're focusing on and things like that, because metaphors are great for structuring knowledge and sort of filling in our filling in our understandings of how an issue works. But not always so great at at making people care about the issue or or really caring about um, feeling this sense that, wow, I should we all you know collectively are responsible for doing something with this. And so sometimes that happens through better understanding of an issue. But um, metaphors can't necessarily do all of the things that we hope for a good communication to do. And there's so much more you need to consider. I mean, the metaphor is not the message. It's kind of a hook for the message. And, and uh, again, as you said, a way to kind of um, structure people's understanding. But there's so much more language you have to use and so many more things you need to accomplish. So I think thinking like a linguist to bring in a, a careful verbal alertness and a sensitivity to all the things a language might be cueing um, is really helpful. So are you calling, are you calling them, ta- are you talking about how we're using taxpayer dollars? Or are you talking about how we're targeting public resources? Are we struggling against aging or fighting an addiction? Or are we um, supporting healthy aging and ensuring access to uh, good good su- substance use disorder health care, right? So there's, there's you know, what what are all the things your your words are doing and, and how are they working for you or against your ultimate goal in the communication? Can you say a little more about the metaphor is not the message? Because I, I think at times advocates, when we make these recommendations, imagine, you know, when we provide sample language, they imagine just saying that metaphor and that will explain the issue fully. Yeah. So if we go back to the metaphor I talked about as, as education reform, talking about reform as a process of remodeling, um, that helps people think. It structures an understanding. It kind of gives you, you're, you're having the conversation in the space of we're not tearing it all down, um, but it's also not okay the way it is now, right? So you've kind of gotten that Goldilocks spot, the middle, like we have some change needed, but we're not, but there's good things here too. So that's, a good structure to build on. But if you don't have some examples to come behind with that, right? So to talk about um, the process of assessment that we're going to use, it's not, we're never going to take a test ever again. Um, But it's also not okay that we're narrowing our entire curriculum to a set of skills that are easily tested through a standardized means, right? And so you need to give an example of an alternative. And that's the actual, that's the space where advocates tend to be comfortable, right? If if you go to someone in New Hampshire, they can talk about the uh, comprehensive uh, authentic assessment policy they've got all day and all the nuances of it and why this one is better than the one on the West Coast and et cetera. And so that, that is, that's the stuff that the advocates want people to understand and that you need to push people towards uh, in order to, for your advocacy to be effective. Um, so the metaphor can kind of open a door and give you a, a space where you can have that conversation, but you need to follow it up with examples. You need to follow it up with desired policies. You need to follow it up with uh, sometimes the history of, well, why are some schools actually, have they already gone through this metaphorical remodeling? And in some places, um, you know, they're they're really not there. So there's a lot more to it. And I think, I mean, thinking about messengers is helpful as well. Like, I mean, as as a linguist, if you think about public discourse, there's going to be, you know, like the content of the message, but also like, who are you talking to and who is the messenger? And this is something that we test as well. 
um, when we make recommendations. And so the example that Julie gave earlier about, you know, um, the fact that typically people who work in aquariums and zoos are, you know, considered trusted uh, messengers and effective messengers to talk about climate change and its role on oceans is something that's really interesting. Uh, when in the work that we did on poverty in the UK, we surprisingly found that bishops were um, very effective messengers to uh, to talk about, you know, to get people to support um, policies that would uh, reduce poverty in the UK. Um, so, so depending on um, the issue, the messenger is actually also part of the message on, on some level or how effective the message is. And it's, it's, it's a key part of the strategy that you need to think about as an advocate when you think about how do I communicate best about this? Like who, who is doing the communication is, is a key element to keep in mind as well. And how do you identify who those folks might be? Like, so how did you arrive at bishops being the best messenger to talk about poverty in the UK? So we we test a variety of different of different messengers. Um, we th there's a couple of criteria that you want to keep in mind, right? So you want your messenger to be credible. Um, you want them to have some connection to the issue. Um, it, there's there's other you know criteria that you want to keep in mind. So you would not you know probably it would not make much sense to test you know, somebody who works in aquariums to talk about poverty. It makes more sense to test bishops because there is in some some level people can see a connection between the church uh, in, in the UK and and you know taking care of people who are trapped in poverty. Um, so so yeah the, there are a couple of criteria but we we test a variety of different messengers uh, in our experiment um, to to make sure that you know there are like significant differences in the way that people think depending on who's the messenger yeah yeah and and i i think i mean that both of what emily and julie are saying speaks to the importance of, of testing it because it is an empirical question and often we'll say okay this messenger seems like they'd be really credible on a certain issue but credibility itself is complicated we don't know what a person is bringing to to bear when they encounter a message by any given um any given messenger so you know while it seems kind of like sometimes mismatched ones. So why why would a business person communicate about climate change when when maybe it's against their, you know, what seems like their best interests, when in reality, that might actually um, send a message of credibility? Because again, why would they communicate this unless it were really the truth? So it's, it's a really tricky um, balance. And I think our intuitions can get us somewhere, but but only so far. And, and so that's exactly why we then have to test different um, messengers talking about different things. I'm just like thinking about explanation. I just think that like we have a tendency to think that when something is really clear and obvious to us, and, and I'm speaking as a former educator here as well, that like, you know, sometimes something seems so straightforward and you leave, live and breathe something. You think that just stating it as, as something that is true will be sufficient to, you know, convey it accurately to the person across the table from you. And I think more often than not, that's not the case for a variety of reasons, which you've probably already covered in the previous episode of this wonderful yeah. podcast. <laughs> uh, so cultural models, assumptions, but also our just general tendency to build a, a story and a narrative over stuff that we don't understand. So if, if something comes up and I have no idea how to make sense of it, I will create a story based on what I know. Um, and so on some level, providing an explanation as opposed to just stating facts 
is going to, you know, plug in some kind of a storyline to, you know, kind of fill in the blanks in there for people. And I think, I think that that's part of what metaphors are doing and also other tools that we have. So Julie mentioned examples. So we're, we're trying to get our examples, not just to illustrate a point, but actually to use the examples as a way to explain how something works um, in a way that I think makes them really powerful. But I think I think explanation is at the center of what we're doing because we do think that you have to go beyond just saying something and to to make sure that it gets across the way that you want it to get across. And that's sort of rule number one, or I guess point one that we make to advocates, right? That I, I think we often say that no one knows as much about the issue as you do. And so there's oftentimes that assumption that if I just say it, certainly you will believe it and understand it as I've told it to you. And that's just simply not the case. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's a huge challenge for communicating, but it's also what makes communication so rich and interesting is that humans are really complicated. And so we understand things in in so many different ways. And um, there's so many different factors at play in any given kind of, say, information transfer that, um, yeah, it's certainly why it's hard to explain some of the really complex issues we're all working on, but why it's also pretty gratifying, too. Great. So, hi, this is Rose Hendricks, um, and, and today I have the privilege of speaking with Lara Boroditsky, who is a cognitive scientist at, at UCSD and uh, conveniently my um, PhD advisor. So what are the big questions for you in your research? What are, what are some of your goals? The question that always drives me is how humans get to be so smart. We uh, have so many um, incredibly complex sophisticated knowledge structures that we've built up over time across our cultures. Um, you know, if you look around uh, probably anywhere you're standing, unless you're out in the wilderness, you're surrounded by incredibly complex cultural artifacts that uh, were created by generations and generations of human minds, cognitive effort. And um, I'm really curious how Mind, how brains that evolved for basic, you know, locomotion and survival have been able to create these incredibly abstract, uh, complex ideas that have completely transformed our environment, uh, and continue to imagine things that go, uh, way beyond the currently possible. Yeah. That, and so I think that's such an interesting kind of, um, way to frame it is, is how we're getting, how humans get so smart. Do you have, you know, what what kinds of approaches do you take in your work to drill down into that question? Well, one thing I always look at, uh, of course, is the influence of language. So there are incredible structure and complexity uh, inside every human language. And um, I wonder uh, often how much of the complexity that we have in our thinking is um, constructed by or helped uh, by um, the structures that we build into language. Um, and, you know, language has this, uh, has a lot of wonderful properties. Uh, human languages have a lot of wonderful properties. One very key uh, property is that we're able to infinitely recombine elements to make uh, an infinitely creative new set of ideas, right? So you can take words you already know and put them in new arrangements 
and create a new mental image, create a new idea. Um, to give you a silly example, I could say imagine um, a bunch of alligators playing chess while um, yachting around the Florida Keys. Uh, now, you've probably never thought that precise thought before in your life, I hope. <laughs> I have not. <laughs> if everything has gone relatively well for you, uh, you probably haven't had that precise idea in your mind. But I was just able to generate it by combining words that we both know and transmit it to you. Uh, and we're able to do this, of course, in language, not just with kind of these silly uh, ideas, but with incredibly important ideas, uh, taking uh, knowledge that we already have, that we all share, and then extending it through analogy, through metaphor, to go way beyond what is knowable, what we can experience. Yeah. it's And, you know, what strikes me about that is especially, you know, where we work in the nonprofit sector and, and all of our partners do as well, we're we're really working on such complicated issues. And and sometimes it, it actually might seem like the issues that, that we and our partners are working on are actually so vast. So I don't know, things like climate change or hunger or early childhood development that um, surely language can't have that big an impact on these super complicated things. But it, it actually sounds like you're suggesting that um, because they're so complicated, we we almost need to rely on language and we use language to build up our understandings of those. It's, can you tell me a little more about that? So, like, um, you know, how how it might be that language allows us to grapple with these massive, complicated issues we're facing. Sure. Well, you know, almost everything you know uh, about the world that um, isn't something that happened exactly while you were there, <laughs> right? So anything that you know that happened before you were born or at any other place, uh, when you weren't directly present, almost all of those things you learned through language. Uh, and our understanding of almost any complex issue, like how the economy works, how uh, the climate works, all of those things are also communicated to us through language. Now, because they're so complex, you know, there's not a single human that, um, you know, out of the 7 billion or so, there's not a single human that really understands fully how the world economy works, every part of it works. And there's not a single human that understands uh, entirely how uh, climate works, even the experts. And that's um, especially true for us regular folks, uh, you know, the nincompoops. But we still want to talk about it and we still want to make decisions about it. Of course, we need to vote uh, to try to affect some kind of change. And so language provides us these simplifying structures for thinking about these complex things that otherwise we wouldn't be able to think about. So when it comes to the economy, for example, we might say, oh, we need to jumpstart the economy. That's why we need an economic stimulus package. Well, that helps you think about the economy in a particular way. So we know what it means to jumpstart a car. Uh, it, it suggests there's a temporary problem and a temporary infusion of some kind of energy will resolve the issue. Now, that helps you, uh, helps you reason through that particular framing of the economy. It, it could be wrong. 
it could be that the thing that's wrong with the economy is not a temporary problem, but rather a chronic problem. And so maybe a more apt metaphor would be that it's a chronically ill patient that will require long-term care <laughs> rather than a vehicle that just needs an infusion of energy. Uh, but nonetheless, either either of those metaphors will take a small part of what we know about the economy, put it into a structure that we can then reason through. Um, and so because there's so many um, radically different ways to talk about the economy, we can really sway um, people's decisions and people's reasoning about what, uh, what's the best way to go because uh, yeah. each frame will capture different parts of what they know and understand. Yeah, yeah. And and I mean, those those metaphors that you just pointed out about the economy, of course, they're they're so vivid, too. And I'm wondering, you know, if if that vividness or how important is that vividness or or I guess maybe asked another way, you know, why is metaphor so useful or important for us in, in trying to understand how humans think and, and how we've gotten so smart? Well, you know, metaphor is just unavoidable. <laughs> there's, uh, there's not really a way to talk about any of these complex things without resorting to metaphor. Uh, the main reason is that we just have a finite set of words in the language and an infinite and growing set of things we want to talk about. And the way that we deal with that problem is that we con constantly extend uh, words that uh, um, we have kind of normal, canonical, accepted uses for into new contexts. So we're kind of stretching stretching those words constantly. And some of those become uh, welcome stretches, stretches that seem to be uh, meaningful, acceptable to others. And so they become conventional metaphors and eventually may even seem like they're not metaphors at all. They just seem like they're just part of the meaning of the word. I kind of think of the dictionary as a retirement home for metaphors, right? Once when something gets becomes canonical enough, uh, it can go and retire in the dictionary is one of the one of the meanings. Uh, but while it still seems novel, we say, "Oh, this is a this is a metaphor." Uh, but one way to one way one way to convince yourself of how ubiquitous metaphor is is to take um, any front page of a uh, daily newspaper. And go through and try to underline everything that you think is a metaphor in uh, in the article. And when I ask students to do this, um, very quickly you start to feel confused because you think, boy, I can't even tell actually what is or isn't a metaphor here because everything seems metaphorical and it's really hard to find a sentence that doesn't contain metaphors. And so I think often people think that metaphors are these rare occurrences that um, – you know, our uh, fine, you know, fine flourishes or touches that happen in fiction. But if you look at everyday speech, uh, it is suffused with metaphor. It's hard to find um, any conversation about something that's complex that isn't just uh, entirely metaphorical. Sure, sure. And then one of my last questions, Lara, is one that I often get as a um, metaphor researcher. And that is, um, do you have a favorite metaphor? Hmm. <laughs> um, it's interesting. I've never been asked that question. <laughs> so this is only me. 
I have, uh, no, I, 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 I don't know. Is that like, it's like picking a favorite child? Uh, I, I'm always, um, I guess I like new ones. Whenever I come across something that's new that really seems to capture a lot of structure, I really like that. Or something that's very, um, uh, that seems very revealing. I'll tell you a funny one. So, uh, I've done a lot of work on how people talk about time. And of course we have lots of, lots of metaphors to talk about time. Uh, you use spatial words. We say time is money. Um, we say time, um, you know, is like a pursuer. It'll chase, it'll chase you down. Things like that. Uh, but my, my favorite one is that time is a, is a great healer, but a lousy beautician. <laughs> yep. All right. That that sounds apt to me. The reason I like it is that it, it captures a lot of structure, right? And it it extends a, a common a common belief we have that time heals things, but then uh, takes it to another profession and says, yeah, but you know, in this other professional world, it's not the best. <laughs> Yeah, that's a great one um, and a fantastic, I think, note to end on. But but before we do, if if our listeners want to find um, more about your work, where can they do that? Uh, you can uh, find uh, articles that come from our lab on Google Scholar. Uh, you okay. can go to my website. If you type my name into Google, it'll be easy to find me. There's a TED Talk of mine online uh, on how the languages to speak shape the way we think. They can listen to that. Cool. We'll um, we'll be sure to post that then in the in the notes we add with the show. Great. Great. Well, uh, thanks so much again for for your time. It was so great to um, to chat and learn about your thoughts on metaphor. Uh, it was such a delight and really fun to talk to you again, Rose. Really excited for what you're doing. Okay, back to oral health. Remember those barriers we discussed? Transportation, language, access, coverage? Well, consider the tested metaphor of keys and locks. Think of the barriers as locked doors and the solution to those barriers as keys. Well, I, I, I think it's just, it, it's, it's access. Because if, if you have a key, that means you have access to open the door. Doors being the uh, barriers that we faced or the, the blockages or the hurdles that the everyday person faces to get uh, good oral hygiene. I would say the door is the problem. So maybe a lack of education or distance or high cost. The keys being the solutions and the ideals and the ways that we can unlock those closed doors. By taking this linguistic approach, you can turn your audience's attention to access to care and policy-based solutions, rather than focusing on individual behaviors, such as visiting the dentist or brushing your teeth. The metaphor enables us to have an advocacy conversation instead of a consumerist or behavioral change one. Thanks for listening. Until next time. If you'd like to learn more about keys and locks or any of our other metaphors, visit our website at frameworksinstitute.org. Frames of Mind is produced by April Callen and recorded, edited, and co-produced by Cameron Lopez. Thank you to our guests, fellow staff, and of course our partners over the last 20 years who've made this work possible. Frame on.